in three, two, one. In today's saturated market, where messages and brands constantly jostle for a slice of our attention, merely having a visually appealing design or a memorable tagline doesn't cut it anymore. It's about diving deep, beyond the surface, to genuinely connect with the core of human emotions and thought processes. This is where our guest, Jim Petrozinski, the CEO of Soulsight, truly excels and sets himself apart. Jim has been a pivotal force in shifting cultural landscapes and propelling brand growth by tapping into an unparalleled comprehension of the human psyche. Picture this, crafting brands that do more than just exist, brands that thrive and resonate within the very essence of consumers, sparking both an emotional connection and delivering concrete results. Prepare yourself to explore the intricacies of constructing brands that not only capture, but also captivate hearts, all while driving impressive outcomes. Join me now for my conversation with Jim Petrozinski. Well, hi, Jim. Welcome to the program. We're delighted to have you. Thanks for having me, Michael. Now, where are we speaking to you from today, Jim? I am located in Chicago, right on the river on Wacker and Wells across from the Merchandise Mart. Lovely, lovely. Chicago's a great town. Great restaurants, good sports teams. So it's always a fun time in Chicago. And it gets that moniker of the Windy City for a reason, but a beautiful place, particularly in the summertime. The wintertime you get off the lake there, it gets a little on the chilly side. And you're from the area? Grew up there? Yes, born and raised in Chicago. So it's been my home for almost 50 years or over 50 years. Oh, well, you're looking good. So whatever you're doing. <laughs> it's that cold wind. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. Hey, I'm excited about our topic today. Becoming preferred, we believe in brand, what we call brand experience. And I know you've been focusing on building what you call emotive brands, brands that move. So you are a CEO of a full service branding agency. And I'm curious how you got there. I know you started off in the world of design. So let's go back to just start, give us the foundation of where you got to where you were. You started off in design or you came out of school. You were one of those guys who was really good at graphics or what? How'd you get here? Yeah, I graduated with a degree, an MBFA in graphic design, very close to a minor in anthropology. So I was really interested in the human science part of more of the cultural part of things than the physical, but very interested in the human science part of things too. But I was paying for my own school. So there wasn't going to be another semester added for a minor or a double major. My first job was at a packaging design agency, which they focused primarily on more electronics, a lot of cleaning supplies. Ironically, the very first packaging work that I did for a brand was a very emotive brand. It was Barney the Dinosaur. I don't know if you know that. Barney and... Do you love me? Let's yeah. <laughs> try something like that. <laughs> so that was one of the first like actual branding assignments that I worked on that was more holistic outside of how to communicate outside of pack and holistically. So there's an experience that you feel when you see when you see the different elements of the brand and how they relate together and work together. And then I worked at another, I moved on to another packaging design agency, which was much larger, but I felt like there was something missing in that experience that I had in school where you worked in a smaller studio-like setting where there was that safety, that psychological safety to like lean over to your neighbor, see what they're doing, offer suggestions, offer opinions. I love feedback. I love constructive criticism. A lot of people don't like to receive it, but I think it always makes me look at things in a different way. And I started to work for a woman who founded our company, Ann Warner, since retired, and was one of the first hires as a designer. So there were three of us to begin and focusing really on mid-level companies where we could be more of a boutique style agency so that we weren't 
working with big iconic brands like we do today, which we've since have evolved to. But as we grew up in the market, just really my interests kept sparking back to that. What's the human piece? What's the design piece? How do these fit together? Design's all about problem solving. Brands are made for humans. There's a puzzle here that has to come together. And we really got down to this notion of thinking about empathy and how does that empathy work when we are thinking about brands. And I had the privilege of sitting through some really hardcore empathy training for an innovation product that was going to be launched when we were doing ethnographies. And through that process, understanding you know what empathy really meant and how to feel empathy and think about empathy in a different way so that you could understand that relatability that needs to happen for people to be able to connect, whether it's with other people or with a service or with a product. So that was quite exciting. And then taking that forward, thought, man, there's got to be a way that with that empathy, there's so much emotion tied into it. How can I learn more about emotion? So I went on a little bit of a I would say my own MBA course did a lot of reading, understanding what those needs are and that continuum from wanting to be an individual, but also wanting to find a sense of belonging. And where do you fit on the spectrum in order to keep continuing to grow? Brands need to continue to grow just like human beings need to continue to grow to stay relevant. And we need to keep up with culture. Had me really thinking about, okay, what is that insight? There's the need, then there's the emotion, then there's the thought. And then there's an action. So going through that process of thinking about how people make decisions made me think that emotions were really the messengers to help us solve problems. And I think where it became interesting is sitting through, as we've developed and grown our business, working with huge, huge iconic brands, global brands, a lot, there's a lot of risk and change. There's a lot of risk in innovation. There's a lot of risk in trying new things. And we get briefs that talked about emotional reason to believe or avatars created for target consumers. And they just felt so subjective. They felt like, where is this insight coming from? And why does it exist? How did we get this information? And for the most part, it was the marketer writing the brief or the CMO going after an opportunity to find a way to connect and relate. And the emotion didn't even connect to what the purpose of the brand was, right. brand was. And after doing more investigation there, you find a lot of the quantitative studies that are done where you can assign attributes. You can do a study that you can quantifiably say, what's my risk when I'm going to go to market? We from, from a quantitative perspective and a trade perspective, we can understand how do we stack up next to current? How do we stack up next to our competition? And interestingly enough, testing that did really well, things would not do well in market and vice versa. You'd have testing that did poorly, but those brands would do really well in market. One thing we've never been able to test or quantify is what is that emotional relevancy or that emotion connection that's driving all of that purchase yeah. behavior. So digging in and digging in a little bit more, there was a Gallup poll just last year that says 70% of all decisions are made subconsciously by our emotion. Right. I think it's Zaltman at Harvard says it's over 95% of our emotional is unconsciously emotional. So there's something to that emotion and how those fit together in order to create authenticity that then is relatable. I think it's a lot like storytelling in some cases sure. where I like to use the example and I heard this from someone else and I wish I could credit them. But if you compare the movie Die Hard to Rambo, you emotionally can connect better to Bruce Willis because you can feel the love that he has for his I think his fiance at the time and the love he has for his job and that tension that gets created there between the struggle between like where he needs to be versus Rambo who just 
is out there just yeah. killing the bad guys. Warrior blowing up things. Yeah. How relatable is that to most of us? Not very relatable, right? So you look for those emotions that try to either complement or fulfill a need or fulfill a void or actually use them to bring people together and hold things together. That's where we've had success in defining that emotional research. From my viewpoint, emotion falls flat a lot when we're talking about sales and where we're going to go and what our risk management or what our mitigation is, because we can't put a number against it or success metric against it when we're sharing something with the CEO or the CMO. Yeah, it's a line item, but it's hard to find sometimes. And it's interesting how you got pointed in that direction or attracted to it. So I can see where the evolution of that from a design point of view, because design is good design evokes emotion, right? So you obviously captured that thought early. And then marketing was all messaging, and there was a big disconnect between the delivery and typically the messaging. So in the approach, what I find interesting with what your organization does and what you recommend is you emphasize the importance of an empathetic mindset. And you don't hear that very often. That's unique to you, I think. Can you explain how empathy plays a role in connecting consumers or let's call them our buyers or end users emotionally to the brands that you work with? Interestingly enough, the empathy that we would show towards each other is the same way we would think about the empathy for a brand. Like, how do you think about a brand or what would it be like if you were in those brand shoes? And it's not always, you know, this is what you need to do to change this. But the understanding of where the brand stands today is almost like auditing where the brand is currently in its environment and in its space and in its living within the world and really understanding what I'm going back to the needs again, but what needs are being fulfilled and where there is opportunities or gaps empathetically for that brand to fulfill. Was that a battle for you to evolve companies that way? It seems to me in order to have empathy, you have to have EQ. And for organizations, we're all on a spectrum. So just as we have narcissistic individuals, I'm sure we have narcissistic organizations and companies and who, hey, we're number one, we're the best, we're the biggest, we're the best. And they don't even understand the empathy or don't even have that as part of approach. Do you run into that? We have in the past. Yeah, I think it's it's one of those obstacles where I think you come as you are and you come authentically and we're going to be right for some people. We're not going to be right for others. And there's plenty of work to go around for everyone. That's the style of how we work has been the authentic style in which we work has been received well. I mean, our client retention, we have clients, we've had a client, most of course has been a client of ours for 20 years. Hershey's has been a client of ours for over 10 years, Campbell's over 10 years. So there's something to be said about creating those empathetic, also human relationships with the brand manager. So we're always helping them think ahead for what's next for their brand or how we can lean in on their brand, lean in for them on their brands. So whether we're an iconic brand or a mid-level brand or a small business brand, we're just entering the marketplace. The process, I'm assuming that you've the creative process you go through, you've obviously within your organization created an environment where strategic vision can thrive, but how do you foster that type of environment and that process you take? Do you take the same approach with any particular client in order to identify the key emotives or emotions that you might be using in your messaging? Yes, there is. We have what's called our soul process. You can actually look it up in our website, but it's kind of a process that is a little bit different than typically how you might think about the design thinking process that a lot of agencies or a lot of the ways that people think about it. It really starts with you got to love an acronym and an acronym that describes the name of our company, but SOUL stands for, is an acronym for really surveying the situation. So uncovering what that brand opportunity is. The O 
for Soul is like outlining, then outlining that opportunity. So creating a big idea together that then helps us understand what that distinct range of creative needs to be in order to fulfill that opportunity, that leading us to unlocking the concept. So as all of that strategy goes into unlocking a concept that delivers market-ready concepts that can be validated, whichever way we want to validate them. And that can come in many ways, shapes, or form. And the last would be land the expression. And I think this one's important because we used to call it launching the expression, but really launching is just the beginning. And yeah, that does work in innovation, but landing the expression really helps us develop a visual identity, that brand that can be pushed out through many touch points and then holistically hold together to create an experience. So it's not the beginning or the end by any means. It's more of the middle or the hub in which things move out from. That makes sense. If we were to take that model and we wanted to give an example, so let's use Coors as a client, or you could use Hershey's as a client, and they can see those on your website. You've got all major brands. You've got football teams, basketball teams. You've got some pretty, people will recognize the brands that you work with. What would be the process? So if we were taking Coors, for instance, what's the emotion? What's the story? What are we going after there from an ideal customer point of view? And how would we use the emotion in that scenario or messaging that? triggers that emotion, if you will, in the end user. Yeah. So Coors is an interesting example of a product that is known to be cold as the Rockies, right? But is meant to chill, like chill and like hang out. So it has a double meaning in the word chill. And that in that chill, there's warmth, right? You're with friends, you're with family. So how does that come to life? And really in a very executional way, and I won't bore you with the strategy, is what got brought to the course package was more color when we were working on that. And where do you sit with friends when you're enjoying a cold beverage? It's not on a cold mountain while you're skiing. It's off the mountain or the mountain may be in the distance and you're enjoying it with some warmth. So the perspective has to change a little bit in terms of what chill actually means in terms of how do we relate to each other and then how do we relate to the brand. So those details get focused and looked at and go, what oh, absolutely. Yeah. I want to do in my own personal work. We spend a lot of time on emotional triggers and I come from the sales point of view. So we take your beautiful collateral and marketing material and everything that you create. Then we go tell the story. The reason we tell stories was to evoke emotions. So it seems to me you're layering in. If we watch a movie and there's no soundtrack, no musical soundtrack, I could take a movie and make it sound really scary just by the music and add, which evokes the emotion of fear or that's coming there. So the brain, from my understanding of it anyways, we have two computers. We've got our prefrontal cortex, does our analysis. And then we have our amygdala, which is the fight or flight. That's our lizard brain. And so if there's something already in our database that sits in the amygdala, it's easier to, that's where our emotions come from. That's where we met mm-hmm. versus a logical approach. So for companies then to identify their target market, identify the individual or the type of the avatar for that person, can you have more than one or is it best to focus per vertical or can you be broad based? And can we, for instance, let's take Apple as a good example. I'm a big Apple user, love everything Mac. I won't line up for two weeks and camp outside, but I'm an early adopter, right? And it's like it almost becomes a cult in one sense because anything they come out with, I want to look at and I probably want it. So there's an emotional attachment to it. And if you're an Android person, it's the same. You mm-hmm. know, see that. We see the emotions working in our political systems, you know, in the Absolutely. US. We're seeing two extremes. When COVID hit, we had, if you wore a mask, you were a Democrat. If you didn't, you were a Republican. The identity, the emotions, and the vitriol, even within families and breaking, that's how powerful those emotions get, aren't they? 
Yeah. And I think it can get a little bit scary when we overgeneralize or we create a larger macro stereotype those into different ways. But as you said, for Apple, there's many different types of people that you would use to describe Apple diehards or Apple lovers, or Apple may do something slightly different for someone else than it does for me. Like it might make me feel wise and what might make me feel like I'm up to date or in style because I'm using a Mac. The truth is that's what our industry uses. That's Macintosh is the choice for brand and design. I think that I've seen those macro stereotypes become too broad, especially when it comes to targeting a specific type or segment of people because they're the brand brands have to relate. People might be in the same target demographics, but they have a totally different lifestyle, life stage, yeah. and they're looking for different meaning or there's different emotions that are important for them to be fulfilled. I don't know. Have you seen the Netflix series Beef? Yes. Yeah. So there's a perfect example of that. You have two similarly aged individuals and, the, and I've only seen the first episode, so I don't know where things go. But in that first episode, it had me thinking about branding because you have those two characters who are both not in a good headspace where they're at. They're both wanting to control everything possible that's happening in their lives. They're, she drives a Mercedes, crystal clean white Mercedes. Everything is clean lined in her house, but she's unhappy and she's not happy with the situation that she's in. I don't know where this is going to turn out to be. And then to the opposite of her, which you could consider a similar demographic, is a gentleman who drives like a Ford F-150, probably 10 years old. And is unemployed who lives with his brother in the hotel that his parents lost. And also he's yearning for control to be able to like provide for for everyone else and make everyone else happy. And so it's interesting to me is what defines those two, what brings them together is actually the emotion. Like that same emotion and that same need is what brings them together. It's not where they live, how much money they make, which we tend to look at when we look at demographics and target markets, but we skip over the fact that there's that core emotion that somehow connects those to each other. And the fact that they have that core emotion makes them want, each want to win in a different way. Like they want to be the last one to win. Danny and Amy. Danny yeah, and Amy. there you go. You got the names. That came out in the springtime. Yeah, interesting show. Yeah, that's a good example of that. Well, and it's interesting with the brands because we see it even with politicians. We see it everywhere in our messaging. And I think if people look at it from an awareness, what emotions are being triggered for me here? You know, why do I want to do this? Where's the compelling action to it? Like when something comes up, for instance, I use Apple as a good example. Right away, it's all I can do to stop myself from going out and buying it right away. It really is. And I know what's being done. I know the story that's being told. I get it. My buddies, I got buddies who are Android guys and hate everything Apple. You know, So every time Apple comes out with something, it just reinforces. It creates a different emotion in them and they will never be Mac people, right? They're PC. Right. Even if it's crappier and we get people who have different thoughts in the, in the US, we got people who are, you know, hey, no, the election was stolen and we won't get into all the politics, but they fervently right. believe it. Right. So even when you have empirical knowledge or wisdom or insights, it doesn't matter. We see what we want to see once those emotions are triggered. Yeah. And I think as we talk about ourselves as an agency and how we work with brands or how we work with marketers or CMOs or CEOs of these larger companies, what we had to do is really think about what are the values that are important to live and breathe within our own agency so that it is reflected back out to the work that we do. Right. So you know, passion, growth, and respect are the three values that we hold strong. I like to add beauty in the word there because the word beauty can have so many different connotations and meaning for 
people and for the work that we do. But those three core values that are enabling the creative and the strategy to be formed in a way that are helping people think in a different way or with a different mindset yield, I think, stronger creative, stronger strategy, but more innovative. We do a lot of work in innovation, more innovative products because you're peeling the onion further and further back to the center of what we need to know. This episode is sponsored in part by Rainmaker Digital Solutions, featuring Active Campaign. Looking to drive growth with customer experience automation? Active Campaign, the number one marketing automation platform for e-commerce, B2C and B2B companies, gives you the email marketing, marketing automation, and CRM tools you need to create incredible customer experiences. Active Campaign is the platform we use to reach, nurture, convert, and grow our business, and you can use it to grow yours. You can see why 150,000 plus businesses like yours choose Active Campaign to help them grow and become preferred in the markets they serve. You can also start your free trial by visiting our website and clicking on the Active Campaign trial link. As a bonus, we'll also give you a digital copy of my book, Becoming Preferred How to Outsell the Competition. And in the interest of full disclosure, I am a shareholder in the company. And now back to my conversation with Jim Petrozinski. When we talk about brand relevance and culture and innovation, how do you ensure that the brands that you work with stay relevant, but also evolve with the culture? So, hey, are we relevant today as we ever were? And then as the culture evolves, because what we see is sometimes we see some brands evolving and then all of a sudden we get the culture wars and we get brand canceling and we have, if they don't like this or it doesn't meet the messages, how do you keep them on track and stay away from danger? That's a great, great question. I think. One thing that I've seen in the last few years is a lot of stunt marketing, which I'll call it, or stunt execution for brands where they might create culture wars or they might create buzz, but those could have lasting effects on the brand for a number of years. So if some of the executions that are being created or some of the initiatives that are being forth don't ladder back to what the brand purpose is, and we should really be asking ourselves, is this part of our brand purpose? And is this something that we can be the best at brand-wise? yes or no? If the answer is no, we shouldn't be doing them. Like I think that we talk about branding as a marathon and not a sprint. Everyone wants to grow fast, grow quick. A lot of the marketers in the industry are in their positions for two or three years and looking for the next promotion. So they want to make change and enact change as much as possible. So there's a lot of education that has to go into understanding. If you want a brand to maintain consistency, become iconic, and hold value in people's minds and hearts, it takes time. You can't pull a stunt marketing activation and make a lot of noise just to get attention. Like that isn't necessarily, that's not right for most of the brands, I would say, if not all the brands we work on. It seems in the creative world, a lot of times we create campaigns and ads and things to win awards, but they don't really move the needle as far as sales are concerned. And we would get companies, I know you have competitors who go, hey, look at our great awards. We're number one, we won this and it's great design, but it didn't translate to more. I love that insight too. I think that we work with a company called, have you heard of Design Analytics? No. So Design Analytics tracks all products and market and they look at when products have redesigned, repositioned or come into market. And some of the things you see winning awards in, at Cannes or different in different design annuals are losing in the market. So it's like, who's really winning at the end? Or are we designing and creating brands for ourselves or are we creating them empathetically for other people? 
You talk about innovation, and I think that's important, but it seems like there's a life expectancy to some of these brands. We've had some world-famous brands that are well-loved brands that have just gone by the wayside. I think back, you know, IBM, I remember, you know, in mm-hmm. the 80s, and 80s, at 60s, it was buy blue. You'll never get fired for buying blue, right? So everybody went IBM and went out, really? Are you even going to consider IBM in anything that you're doing? So we've put them in the back closet somewhere. So they lost the connection, right? And we fell in love with something else. How do brands stay up on that innovative process, if you will? Like Coca-Cola has been around forever, right? And we still all love Coca-Cola. It's tried a few things. It's learned some hard lessons. But at the end of the day, it's Coca-Cola, right? It's a Coke. Yeah, I, I think... With brands like Coke or Pepsi or Molson Coors, I think you have to take some risks every once in a while to see if you can go there. And you have to be okay with failing. Like you have to be okay to to learn. And if it doesn't work out, pivot and try something different. I think you don't have to do it at a massive scale. You can do it smaller and understand like, does this have legs? Is there a way to go? I think that one thing that we like to do also is almost a brand reflection. So looking at the brand every year and auditing, okay, what did we do? What programs were we part of? Who did we license with? What worked? What didn't work? And then also what's trending in the marketplace and where do we see the market going or where do we see culture going? And are some of the things that we did in 2022 still going to be relevant in 2023? Most are not. So it's thinking about how we're always leaning in with trying to think about what's next. And As we think about how things evolve, setting up a brand so that it has the ability to evolve. So it's not so tightly designed or tightly programmed that it doesn't have wiggle room to be able to adapt to a 2.0 or a 3.0 or a 4.0 version. Right. When it comes to advocacy and product advocacy, you know, for in the 90s, 2000, we saw lots of endorsements. I just watched a movie the other day with uh, Michael Jordan with Nike, and I know Nike's one of your clients as well and you know the movie i'm talking about they use different mm-hmm. apps to promote the shoe and then they came out with the mikey it's a great movie but it's a great branding story because they went just with jordan and yes. Air Jordan, right with they put all their eggs in the one basket are endorsements still an effective way to draw that relationship if you will or the relatability between me and the product or is that old nowadays are people looking at it going hey they're just promoting product they i think yeah i think it's changed in some regards where the endorsement is almost the brand endorsing a celebrity instead of a celebrity endorsing a brand. I feel like there's so much opportunities to sell your own brand or to sell your own personality. And if a brand can piggyback off of a celebrity success, it seems like that seems to be more commonplace than the other way around. And how, where, like you talked about Michael Jordan starting his own brand with Nike and Nike believing in Michael Jordan to launch a particular brand. I think we see less of that than we do seeing what type of cosmetics Kylie Jenner is wearing and my 16-year-old daughter then wants to buy the product that she's used, the product that's using. It's a Kardashian product. Yeah, or these influencers. It's interesting. Now, you talk about brand innovation. I know that's a service. We've got brand renovation where we can go and we can evolve a brand and Mm -hmm. take it your product. Then you have brand activation. Talk about what that is exactly. When we talk about brand activation is really how the brand activates itself in that can be in many different ways, whether it's in shopper marketing, whether it's the sounds that are associated with a brand, how it represents itself in media, how the activation in the experience that you have coming from a brand, it could be a brand event or or even just how it's activated within your own home. So as we think about how things are structures are opened or things are used, 
there's always action involved. And I think that's woven into some of our new positioning too, is that we do work in order to move people, move product and move culture. So that action, the word action of the word move is always something that's there. The brand always has to be moving somewhere or targeted to move somewhere. Yeah. Well, that's where a lot of you, I think your creativity and innovation is coming from or the movement towards that. And this was of interest to me. You uncover basic and leverage basic human truths is the way you guys put it. And to inspire the innovation and creativity as part of the strategy. What's that intersection look like? How do we get there? How do you achieve that? I think if the, it's like digging into the matrix a little bit, right? So as you think about the cross axes of those human truth and needs, and then where that unconscious emotion comes from, you kind of start to create these quadrants that you can matrix in continually until you get into a big idea that holds together the context to make it something relevant and sticky. Right. Yeah. Sticky would be the key there. Does it work with organizations with going forward, say startups? Does budget matter? For example, let's use cores. I've got a friend who was part of their marketing team. He was part of a, a team that developed the blue liner. That gave them $100 million a year in incremental growth just by saying every beer can had liners. They made theirs blue. So Glacier Blue, remember the can would turn in, you do all of those things, that's that story. But that mm -hmm. was the only difference. The beer didn't taste better, right? Do companies need big budgets in order to create that kind of magic that comes from that? Or that's a scalable thing? What kind yeah, of I think probably, I think for cores, it's a scale thing. I think it'd be hard for someone out of their garage to recreate something that's compelling. But then you do hear success stories like Method where, you know, the shape and the structure that was formed to be more aesthetically pleasing on the kitchen counter rather than the standard dish soap made a story for people that were interested in having their homes look great or not having to settle for something that that we've been used to buying or used to using, but something that can live on and have another life beyond just being the bottle that gets thrown out after you're done using the soap. I think there are those small success stories, but what we see is those the innovation companies trying to position themselves, the smaller innovation companies trying to position themselves to sell the idea or to sell the product or to sell the service to a larger organization who can scale it in a way that is really hard to do with as much as we have in the marketplace, especially in the US. Yeah. How would you apply your strategies on the emotion, on the empathy, if you will, for service-based companies and organizations? So I know you handle a lot of companies that have products, you know, it might be a football team, could be a basketball team, but let's say you've got a consulting firm, a law firm, an accounting firm, somebody who's in a profession, a coach, a coaching, how could they apply this insight, if you will, on bringing the emotion to their marketplace? I think one company that does it, I'll, I'll use an example, Enterprise Rent-A-Car. They do a great job of utilizing empathy and emotion and weaving it into their brand, understanding that their brand is their people and that the service is the people that you're interacting with at a human level becomes really important. And then needing to codify, what does that look like? What does that sound like? What is best in class? In the same way we would set up a standards for how things might look visually, you need to start thinking about setting up standards for how things are communicated, how others are treated, how you problem solve, who to go to when there's an issue or who to go to when someone's done an incredible job. And I think that has to be baked into the culture in order to work well, because Otherwise, it comes off as acting, right? Or inauthentic. Yeah. It's really important. Service businesses, you got to hire the right people. You have to hire the right people who are willing to fit within that model that you've created and yeah. really are able to adapt 
to live out and personify your brand. So companies, they have to look at the total brand experience, the whole customer journey from first touch to last touch, because every touch point matters, right? So it's identifying those touch points, what emotions are being triggered maybe at this particular touch point or level, what are they feeling at this point? Are they stressed out? How do we handle that issue? All of that goes into the thinking, into that process when you take that approach to it. So I know you're pretty thorough. You talk about collaboration and honesty in working with your clients as well in the creative process. So there are key values that you mentioned. How do these translate into day-to-day operations and relationships in your own organization at SoulSight? Yeah, great question. I think that the collaboration is key for creating great brands, at least from my experience. It's hard to create in a vacuum by yourself. The collaboration and the building upon seeing things that we don't see in our blind spots or and the blind spots of what we're producing make the work better. That collaboration has to work in order for the creative to deliver and hit home. I think when we talk about it with the client and that level of trust and collaboration is super important. We have to trust each other here at our agency to have each other's back, to understand that when there's feedback given, it's given for the good of the agency, the good of the brand, the good of what we're doing. And there's a little bit of education that goes in there too with leadership development. But then also with a client, some clients want to hear your opinion and want to hear where you think things are going or how they should change. And others don't. There's others that that want to see the work. They want to respond to it. They want to be able to give it back. But we try to lean in a little bit and promote some relationship building and understanding that you can trust us. Like you run into a problem and you need something you have my bat phone. I'm here to trust you. It's like a trust fall kind of thing. Like we're going to get you out of a jam. And and after you get someone out of a jam a certain amount of number of times, they tend to trust that you're going to be able to do it again and again. Can you speak freely with these companies? In other words, do someone, and I'm sure they're all over the map, but they don't want to hear the truth or if they got something that just, they suck. They go, hey, you guys suck at this. This thing needs tossing out and we need to start over with a clean slate. Do you get those things as well? Or is everything an evolution? I think if the criticism you're giving is grounded on solid strategy and purpose, it's easy to give. If you're just giving criticism because I just don't like something, that's not, that's ineffective. So right. So that matters. So it has to be something that strategically, like this is how I see it. And it's okay. And I often say, it's okay for you not to agree with me, but I don't feel like I'm doing you a service if I don't tell you what I'm feeling or what I think or where we think we should go. Yeah. Talk talk quickly about the future of brand design and how important it is in brand experience. So looking to the future, how do you see the field of brand experience, brand design evolving? And what role will empathy and human connection play in that evolution in your mind? I think it ultimately has to play in it. Empathy, human connection, emotion. If you think about where some of the things that we've seen happen with AI and where the future of the creative world is going, robots understanding emotion, maybe they will be able to someday, but I haven't seen an effective use of how a computer can create something that's going to resonate and hold someone's attention or capture an emotion. That's going to be, as we move forward, emotion, empathy, are going to become even more important as we move forward because the quality is going to be more important than the quantity. We'll be able to create, computers will be able to create thousands, if not millions or billions of options, but the quality of that will probably be missing from where we really need to go. Sure. 
Well, it's about sending out all that messaging. Like we're, you know, I saw somewhere we're hit with literally millions of bits of data on a daily basis. What gets our attention, right? How do I focus on that and capture your attention? Are there any platforms that are emerging as the new? And I realize it matters based on the avatar of the target market. Like, so for instance, our audience is mostly business pro. We get them on Facebook. We do get Instagram, but LinkedIn seems to be the big one. But it just wherever your client's hiding or where they reside, that's the place you want to make sure your position. Absolutely. Yeah. I think for us too, like in our marketplace, there's, I say LinkedIn is from a social media standpoint is a place where people are looking for agencies that in the marketplace, some are just looking to work with, like I said, we've had relationships with Molson Coors for 20 years. Many of those people that have worked at Molson Coors have gone on to work at other companies that have brought us in for new business or organically things are growing. Yeah. We still need to stay on top of for new verticals, searching for new ways to continue to look at that. And that's a constant, that's always in constant evolution too, because is it Wired Magazine? Is it Fast Company? There's many different places you can show up and talk about results and creative. I think it went when we get into talking about emotion, I think some people, and I hopefully I've done a good job explaining today more of the science behind it and less of the snake oil magic to it. It's not, there's not a snake oil magic notion to it. I think it's an easy formula. We have these triggers from a sales perspective. We always buy first emotionally justify with reason and logic second, always. If you want to prove it, you just simply look at what watch are you wearing? Why did you choose that watch, right? What computers are you using? What earbuds do you use? What car do you drive? Otherwise, if we were practical and reasonable, we'd all wear the same watch. We'd all drive the same car. We'd all dress the same. And our kids would all have the same name. All right. So emotion drives all of it, like all of it. So the fact that you're focused on that piece of it, I think gives you a big advantage. The best place for people to find you guys will be on the website, will be soulsite.com. We'll have all your contact information in our show notes. Jim, this was really interesting, and I know you have a very thorough process. As a rule, when you take on a new client, whether it's to create a brand or an evolution of a brand, or we're refurbishing one or renovating one, what's that process like from beginning to end before we're starting to execute on what our new philosophy might be? Have you heard of the hedgehog? Yeah. Tim Collins. So the hedgehog, we use the hedgehog to determine, does this meet our purpose? Is this something that we can be the best at? And is this really going to be lucrative and make money for us as we move forward? So those are deciding factors in how, what type of time, energy, resources, staffing, and thinking that go against things that come in the door. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Thanks for spending time and sharing with us some insights. Again, I love your approach. Jim, thank you. I appreciate it. Again, we'll have everything in the show notes. Last question for you. If you had a superpower or you do have them, because you obviously do and you've you found this, what's your superpower? I think my superpower, and this might sound a little cheesy, but is just being comfortable with being authentically me. I think there was a time in my life where that where imposter syndrome comes in and takes over. And you learn from that experience and then you learn, hey, there was nothing wrong with the guy that I was before. And there's actually some value there. So that could also be coming with age too. Yeah, I think your firm is well set and well positioned to level up the whole marketing and agency industry. Thank you. And I think you're right on the right track with that. And because it it works hand in hand with sales and it's always about those emotions and doing it in an authentic way. Like I said, I think you got some uh, really interesting insights and I think our listeners are going to enjoy this episode. So thanks for joining us, Jim. Thank you so much, Michael. This podcast is created and associated with Summit Media. My executive producer is Beth Smith and director of research, Tori Smith. The fee for the show is that you share it with friends when you find something useful or interesting. This podcast is subject to copyright by Summit Media. Goodbye.